Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, we're going to read this familiar psalm from David that was written after Nathan the prophet came to him, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You remember that story, David's sin, and then how he hid that sin. And that, of course, exacerbated the problem. And then finally Nathan came and told him that parable about uh, the sheep, the little the farmer with one sheep and the rich man with many. And then David responded by saying, that man will pay. And Nathan said, you're the man. And after that, David wrote these words. Let's listen to them together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Now we turn to the fifth petition, the fifth petition, Lord's Day 51 in our Heidelberg Catechism. Just by way of note, we have, I think, three sermons left in our Catechism series uh, two, uh, one today and then two on Lord's Day 52. And then I have plans to begin um, something of an apologetic or um, a defense of the faith sort of thing, study in um, the Belgic Confession, uh, an explanation of why we believe what we believe, that sort of thing. Uh, and it seems to me that would be encouraging to all of us, hopefully it is, and equipping for us as we defend the faith in our society. But it might be also opportunity if you're ministering to somebody, if you're talking to an unbeliever, a coworker, a neighbor, it might be an opportunity to, to either share with them those messages when, they're, uh, when we have them or to uh, even bring them to church. So maybe something to think of. I think it'll be about a month before we get there. But um, just so you know, as you're thinking ahead, maybe there's somebody you know that could do with an explanation of the basic truths of the gospel. We'll be doing that. Uh, in due course on the Belgic Confession. But then let's confess together Lord's Day 51, the answer to this question, what does the fifth petition mean? 
forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors means because of Christ's blood do not impute to us poor sinners that we are any of the transgressions we do or the evil that constantly clings to us forgive us just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. This the church does believe. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we face a unique challenge when it comes to praying this petition of the Lord's Prayer, given the culture, the society in which we live, a society which denies the basic, the basic um, uh, categories of falsehood and truth, of, of that which is right and that which is wrong. We live in a society where such things cannot be, where they are mere impositions, they're acts of power imposed upon other people, where they are entirely and always wrong. And where there is no right and wrong, there can be no such thing as forgiveness. After all, forgiveness is given to someone who's committed a wrong. A wrong that is more than just a personal opinion. A wrong that is more than just a societal faux pas. A wrong that is wrong. That must be acknowledged. That must be sought to or must be repented of. And the forgiveness needed to cover it up must be sought. Forgiveness always implies that there is a wrong committed and that that wrong committed has resulted in a brokenness in a relationship, that there are important things like relational bonds that we must seek to maintain, that we must strive to to build up and encourage. Forgiveness always implies that there is a relational imbalance that threatens our bond, our unity, our fellowship. Harm has been done, and that harm must be addressed, even as forgiveness implies that we must surrender. We who are to forgive have to give up rights, have to give up anger, have to give up hurt, have to give up pride. And when you take all of this and you see it in the light of the culture in which we live, the society we're currently within, you begin to appreciate why forgiveness is a very challenging topic, a very difficult way to to live and to think in a society where there are no right and wrongs, where there is no real unity or bond, where division is commonplace and divorce and the like are, are easy and accessible to all, and where sacrificing for others is certainly not the expectation you exist for my pleasure, not the other way around. Now the good news of this means that as Christians we have a very real opportunity to witness and to uh, be a light in a dark world of something much better. Because we know, even though our society does not want to admit it, that not only is forgiveness necessary, it is also very good. That forgiveness heals and forgiveness builds up and forgiveness blesses. And we have an opportunity not only as individuals but also as a community to strive to demonstrate that, 
We can demonstrate that in our own personal relationships with one another, whether that's in our marriages or our parenting or our just friendships, our connections, our, our, our fellowship with one another. And certainly as a community, as we minister to one another, we have the opportunity to show the world a more excellent way, a way that is distinctive. Indeed, forgiveness is always distinctively Christian. It is distinctively Christian because it is motivated by grace. That is the distinctive of the Christian religion. No other religion has this. All other religions require you earn or you accomplish something in order to be blessed. Whereas in the faith that we confess, God, for no reason at all that we can understand within ourselves, chose to redeem us. It begins with grace. And because forgiveness and the concept of forgiveness requires a Christ-like surrender, Christ sacrificed the greatest of all rights and privileges. He who was equal to God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a little lower than the angels. Jesus Christ's pattern, the path that he walked, the example that he left us, calls us to forgive one another, to walk in the same way, in the way of surrender and sacrifice. Our world does not have such a pattern. Our world does not know such a pathway. So whenever we forgive, whenever we forgive big things or little things in the way of the Lord and after the example of Jesus Christ, then we are definitely testifying to the uniqueness of the Christian life and we are being a light to the world. So how do we go about that? How do we show the world this more excellent way? Well, it begins by ourselves acknowledging this need of grace. For we are taught, first of all, in this petition, to forgive us our debts. Now that may seem a strange thing for us to pray. We are called by God to daily, routinely, as this Lord's Prayer exists within our lives, to pray routinely for forgiveness of sins, which, if you begin to think about it, seems a little strange. After all, we believe, do we not, that Jesus Christ, when He died on the cross so long ago, paid for all of our sins. Even before we were born, even before we had committed a single sin, God knew exactly what sins we would commit, and He poured those sins into the cup of wrath, that Jesus Christ had to drink. So all of the sins that you have committed and all of the sins you will commit have already been paid for in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Indeed, we confess that the moment we, by the Spirit's instigation, come to faith in Jesus Christ, the moment we say, I believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior, that He has died for my sins, then at that moment, God in heaven declares us to be justified. That is, He says, as our catechism reminds us, that we are perfectly righteous, as though we'd never sinned or been a sinner, as though we were as perfectly righteous as Christ was righteous for us. That's a wonderful, that's a profoundly comforting testimony, that the moment we believe, God declares us just. But if we are that, if we are now clothed in the garments of Christ, if we stand before God in robes that are perfectly white without a stain to be found on them anywhere, 
then how could we possibly ask God to forgive us for our sins? We're born again. The old has gone. The new has come. Do we need to ask for forgiveness? Well, yes, we do. Theologically, we understand the challenge, but practically, we also know that that even though we are justified in Christ, we continue to sin. Martin Luther reminds us of this. Uh, Martin Luther reminds us of this when he taught us that phrase that we are just and sinners. Yes, we are justified before God in the sight of God, but as our own daily experience reminds us, though we do not live under the power or the guilt of sin, yet we still do sin, don't we? We still make foolish choices. We know what the right thing to do is and we don't do it. We know we shouldn't say that thing that's about to come out of our mouths, but we say it anyway. We know that we are selfish, that we demand that others satisfy us. We know that we are careless, that we do not think twice about God's commands or will for our lives, that indeed the will of God does not follow us each and every day of our lives. We're too often not in our word, letting that word shape our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes. We know, as the Catechism has reminded us, that we sin. Even the holiest among us has but a small beginning of the righteousness required of us. The remains, you see, of our sinful nature, the husk, if you will, the the shape of that old style of living still clings to us. It's not only that sinful deeds have a tendency to grow within our hearts, but there remains this rebellious soil within us that allows these things to constantly germinate and develop. Evil still clings to those who are redeemed by God. Our own experience teaches us this. The Word of God reminds us of this. And so we must live in this tension as long as we walk upon this earth. We rest in the absolute comfort and the joy of knowing that we are in the sight of God justified. But we also know that each and every day we are still sinners, struggling in our sanctification, struggling to become better, struggling to do the right thing. And so we need forgiveness. But now, When we ask for forgiveness, why does God give it? That's equally an important question in all of this. We must first ask ourselves, do we need forgiveness? And the answer is yes. And then why should we be forgiven? Now the answer to that gets a little more complicated. Sometimes we imagine that the reason we're forgiven is because we've asked. That is, that God is somehow obligated when we say to Him, I repent or I'm sorry or some such thing, that for that reason we must necessarily be washed clean. And indeed, in a simplistic sense, there is a truth there that can comfort our hearts. But the truth is, that cannot be the foundation for our forgiveness. After all, That would mean that we can do something, that we can earn something, that we can deserve something 
by virtue of our accomplishing it. That's works righteousness. That's not what we believe in the gospel. So we must dismiss that notion from our hearts and minds that our repentance is the basis for our being forgiven. It is the way that we receive forgiveness, but it is not the reason we're forgiven. Sometimes we think that we are forgiven because that's just what God does. God's in the business of forgiving. And when we ask for God to forgive us, He says, fine, I'll wipe it away. Sort of like our government. Our government does this all the time. Governments and businesses are said to forgive debts, which sounds so nice, doesn't it? You owe your, your student uh, loans back. You owe your mortgage or your, your uh, operating loan back. And you can no longer pay it. And so the government has this program that you can apply to that will forgive your debt. And we think that God essentially does the same thing. When we come to Him and ask for mercy, then He wipes it all away. He deletes it. He shreds the paperwork so that it's no longer around. But that's not at all true. It's not all true in this life or in our relationship with God. You see, when a government or a business forgives its debt, it doesn't get rid of that debt, does it? No, instead, the government or the business assumes the debt for themselves. That is, that the debt remains, it's only the payer, the debtor, who changes. It is now the government who agrees to pay the debt. It is now the business who agrees to pay the debt. When we forgive other people's debt, we assume the cost of paying that debt. Now isn't that exactly what Jesus did on the cross? Jesus assumed our debt. He became sin for us, as the Apostle says. And having taken on our sin, carrying it to the cross, He settles our account before the face of God by offering Himself as a perfect sacrifice, a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus gives Himself to pay your debt. The debt must be paid. The debt must be satisfied. In order for us to be forgiven, God requires the death of His only begotten Son. Now there alone we ought to stop and appreciate just how precious and how costly our forgiveness is. We who daily pray undoubtedly, forgive us our sins, can say that with just such an easy almost thoughtless tone. We're so used to it. It's what we say all the time. It's what we teach our children and our grandchildren to say. But to even say those words, forgive us our debts, is only possible at the price of the most precious blood, the most costly grace, the most glorious King, His death upon the cross. We can treat our sins so lightly. We can treat forgiveness so lightly. Forgiveness becomes this cheap transaction where God just says, right, okay, forget it. Don't worry about it. But it never is. It is always expensive. It is always painful. It is always costly. And it costs God the greatest and most precious gift of all. Do we all always recognize that? No, we do not. 
we ought to remind ourselves every time we ask the Lord for forgiveness that the reason we're forgiven is not because God just erases our debt, not because God just says, well, look at that, he's asking for forgiveness, isn't that lovely? She needs to be washed clean, so she deserves it. That's not why God forgives us. God forgives us because he sent his son to die on the cross for us, to bear the misery and the, and the gore of our, our sins and to suffer the agonies of hell so that what we deserve might be fulfilled in him. Every time we pray for forgiveness, the, or, the enormity of God's goodness and grace should both overwhelm us and encourage us. It ought to encourage us precisely because in Jesus Christ, debts are paid. That's what it means to be forgiven, at least in the context of the Lord's Prayer. That language of debt is intentional. We are to be forgiven as debtors. And when we are forgiven, it means that the debt no longer remains. We all know what debt is. We all undoubtedly have some debt in our lives. And maybe when we pay off our mortgage, we have one of those mortgage-burning parties where we celebrate the fact that we now own our home outright and we no longer owe the bank anything. Now imagine that three months after that mortgage-burning party, you get a letter in the mail that says from the bank, you still owe three months of mortgage payments you've been in arrears. He would say, no, 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 that's not possible. You can't hold me accountable for paying what has already been cleared, what has been paid off in full. Look, here's the paperwork. Here's the testimony that I've paid every dime owed. And now you can stand before the judge in confidence. You can stand before the courts and say, listen, I owe nothing. And that doesn't change if for one reason or another, let's say mom and dad want to provide a, a gift to you and they say, we, what's remaining on your mortgage? And you tell them and they say, well, we'll pay it off for you. When you then stand before the courts with the bank accusing you of being in arrears and you standing there to defend yourself, it doesn't change the fact that the money came from dad and mom that you are in fact free of the debt. You can still say to the judge, I owe nothing. The debt's been paid in full. It's been paid by another, but paid in full nonetheless. The bank does not get more. The debt has been paid. And because that debt's been paid, now in our relationship with God the Father, here's where our our analogy shifts and changes because God is not a banker. God is a father But because our debt to the Father is paid, that means that the way of relationship and fellowship with Him remains open. That which hindered us, that which was in the way, that which separated us from God has been removed. And we can now come into the very presence of God without fear and without condemnation knowing that not for our own works, but for the work of Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven. And His judgment, His wrath, His punishment will never, never come upon us. Now just let that simple truth penetrate your heart and mind. Wonder for a moment at that reality that for the sake of Jesus Christ, you need never fear. 
Oh, the devil doesn't want you to believe that. Your flesh doesn't want you to believe that, nor does your world. They want to remind you constantly of those mistakes you made. They want to show you again about how you have been so cruel, thoughtless, and careless. And indeed, that may be true, and you ought to grieve over that. But you need never fear God's wrath. In terms of our guilt, we will never pay the debt that we owe or suffer the consequences of our sin before the judgment seat of God. We will instead live in eternal fellowship with God and He will make right so many of those wrongs that we've committed. Now be sure, don't misunderstand this, because we still live in this life. We still live in the not yet of Christ's return. We have already received grace sufficient for all of our sins, but we're not yet glorified. We're not yet at the end of our path. We're not yet in eternity. And as long as we're walking this pathway of life, we're going to limp. We're going to stumble. We're going to struggle. Just think for this in this way of Jacob, the patriarch. And remember when he came to Peniel. Remember when he wrestled with God. And he wouldn't let God go until he blessed him. Remember what God did to him in that moment. How he put out Jacob's hip. To this day, We're told the the Jews don't eat that portion of the animal because they want to acknowledge what God had done there. But now think about that for a moment. Jacob's hip was put out in a time before all of the lovely medications and doctors and abilities, MRIs, x-rays, all the rest, orthopedic surgeons, whatever else. Which means that at least this was true for Jacob the rest of his life. He limped. The rest of his life, that hip was sore. A reminder of God's blessing to him. A reminder of God's dealing with him. Sometimes we have the same things, don't we? We make a foolish choice and it causes us physical pain. How many times have we not broken a bone or or caused ourselves to rush to the hospital to get stitches because of a foolish choice we've made. And we keep that scar. We keep that scar with us for all of our days. And maybe that that joint or maybe that that bone that was fixed and healed isn't quite 100% anymore. We can still, maybe when the rain comes, feel the pain of it. There are consequences, abiding consequences to the choices that we sometimes make. Sometimes in God's grace and in God's providence, those, the, the full weight of those consequences does not land upon us. But there are times when, like Jacob, we are called to limp. Our cruelty to another means we're no longer valued or trusted as a friend. Our thoughtless acts sometimes results in, in people wanting to be far away from us. We do sometimes suffer because of the choices we make. But consequences in this respect are not the same as punishment. We think sometimes they are. We think sometimes people are being cruel to us. We think sometimes God is being cruel to us. But we're failing to take responsibility for our choices. And we're misunderstanding the blessing of our limp. Because the limp is there for a reason. It is there to remind us daily to rely upon God. 
Jacob learned. Jacob the liar. Jacob the deceiver. Jacob was brought by God to the place of total surrender and dependence on the Lord. And that limp reminded him always of how gracious and good God was to him. A reminder that his sins were washed clean. That he was forgiven. And that he had a future that he could enjoy in the fellowship of God, on the foundation of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. The glorious message of salvation in the Gospel is this, that though we have deserved judgment, we've been given life. And not for anything we've done, but only for His grace. And now we are to translate that into a lifestyle. For Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It is interesting to note that it is the forgiving of others that is the added comment in this petition. Here in the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, in the prayer of the un, or the parable rather of the unforgiving servant, you remember that one. In the Lord's words of Luke 17 in the verses 1 through 10, our God repeatedly reminds us that forgiveness must result in forgiving. Now we ought to ask ourselves why that is. For we would imagine, I think, that if Jesus was going to add one condition to our being forgiven, Surely it would be the, forgive, the condition, rather, of repentance. That is, forgive us our debts as surely, as sincerely, as genuinely as we repent of them. Isn't that what we believe? Isn't that what we understand? And surely we must repent. Of course we must. That was the ministry of John the Baptist, wasn't it? In preparation for the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. John took the church down to the Jordan River and said, acknowledge your need of grace. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus, when he began his ministry after John was imprisoned, what's the message that he brought to the nation? He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is necessary for the approbation, for the receiving of forgiveness. For repentance, after all, acknowledges what we are in need of. Repentance says to God, I know, I know I'm no good. I know I have sinned constantly. I know that I still sin way more than my heart ever wants to. And repentance says, because we cry out to God for mercy, that God's the only one who can forgive. With you is there is repentance, says the psalmist in Psalm 130, and therefore you shall be feared. We know that God alone can wash us clean. Repentance acknowledges this. So that it is vital in our walking before the Lord not to stand upon our laurels, not to rest upon our self-righteousness, but to humble ourselves daily before the Lord and ask Him for the sake of His Son, Jesus Christ, to lift us up, knowing 
precisely knowing that it is God who resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you want to be lifted up in your life, if you are seeking blessing in your life, if you're struggling in some way in your life right now, the answer to your being lifted up is your going down. It is a contradiction to us. It makes no sense in our minds. But it is the picture of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, got there by going to the lowest place. By humbling Himself unto death. And now He calls us to follow Him. To walk that same path. So that if we need the Lord to encourage, equip, and enable us, Against all expectation, the answer isn't defend yourself. The answer isn't justify yourself. The answer isn't avoid any kind of humiliation. The answer is humble. Always, always humble yourself. Yet repentance can never be the foundation of our forgiveness. Christ alone is that. Repentance, therefore, is a vital expression of our need of forgiveness and the evidence of the Spirit's presence in our lives and the assurance that we have received what God has promised. But it isn't the basis of our being forgiven. So why does the Lord add this condition that we forgive others in order to be forgiven? And understand that is the condition. If we do not forgive, we are not forgiven. The parable of the unforgiving servant reminds us of that. So why is that the condition? Well, we understand from the light of Scripture that forgiveness is so unique, so distinctive a quality, so divine a reality, so only possible when you live in fellowship with the God who by His grace pours out mercy into your life, that it is fundamentally an expression of the Spirit's presence and power at work in your life. That forgiveness is only possible when you have been made alive by God, when you have been filled with wonder and glory, when you have been given the grace that you need to bless others with. Forgiveness testifies that we're alive. Think about it. Think of that parable of the unforgiving servant. The one who owed billions in debt but refused to forgive thousands of debt. What is the problem there? You know it instinctively when you read the story. It is that this man is ungrateful. He's just been forgiven billions and he refuses to forgive just a few thousand. That's ungrateful. That's that's a man that has been unmoved by what his king has done for him. That is a man who has not appreciated the depths of the mercy he's been given. That's a man who hasn't understood the king has now assumed that debt himself and has paid it for him. That is a man who thinks only of himself, but not of his Lord. He doesn't walk in the pattern of his Lord. He doesn't live in the light of his Lord. Now we who have been forgiven so much, indeed far more than we can count, we can't even count it in billions of dollars, we must acknowledge it's even more than that. It's almost an infinite amount of sin that we must be forgiven for. If we are forgiven such an enormous, enormous amount of of, of sin, 
If God knows your misery even better than you do, if God knows the true depth of your wickedness and sorrow as He does, if God knows the darkness of the sin that you never want anybody else to ever know about, and He washes it clean in Jesus Christ, if you are, need never fear because of the worst thing you've ever done, you need never fear the God who loves you in Jesus Christ then should anyone ever fear you? Sometimes we revel in that, don't we? We don't suffer fools gladly. We want people to humble themselves before us. We don't want to be taken so lightly. And so we stand taller and we demand more and we deny grace. It is so easy to do and to justify with pious tones unless they more properly or more fully or more convincingly repent, unless they satisfy my expectation, they will not receive a smile from me or mercy from me or love from me. And again, don't misunderstand. Repentance is important. Of course it is. We're not denying that. But the Catechism so wonderfully puts it for us in this way when it says that forgive as just as we are fully determined as evidence of your grace in us wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbors. We are fully determined. I am ready. I am eager to show that forgiveness. I may need to invite that brother or that sister to a greater sense of God's grace, to a greater dependence upon His mercy, to a greater confession of their sin, of course. But it is out of love, it is out of mercy, it is out of grace that that expression is found. It is not out of judgment, wrath, and condemnation. Now understand that this is no easy thing to do. Just think of your own experience in life and in this life. Think of those times when you have committed a great sin, a gross and terrible sin, and now you're being called out on it. Do you want to acknowledge it? Do you want to admit it? Do you want to say yes? Yes. I grieve every day. I am burdened every day. I limp every day because of that wickedness. It is a scar upon my soul. It is a wound that only Christ can heal. It is a promised future blessing that I look forward to because I grieve for my sin. Or are you more inclined to say, I already asked Jesus for forgiveness and He forgave me, so who are you to tell me I can't be forgiven? My guess is the latter because I've heard it so many times. And understandably so. We are proud creatures. We are arrogant. We are fearful. We are a people that believe that if the truth is found out about us, we will be condemned. But God knows the truth of you, and He doesn't condemn you. And God's people, those who are alive in Christ, will do the same. They will show you mercy and love, and they will lift you up. I to be sure even that's hard to do. Make no mistake, being forgiving is a costly, costly thing. For we are often grievously hurt. Oh, it's one thing to forgive that person who spilled a bit of coffee on you. 
It's another to forgive the one who's wounded your soul through whom you must now, or for, that, for what reason you must now, limp the rest of your days. That is a wound that doesn't easily heal. But you know what doesn't heal it at all? Is bitterness and vengeance. It only exacerbates the problem. Bitterness is that poison we drink, hoping it will harm someone else. Vengeance is that expression of our believing we're God and that we ought to be taken seriously. God can be gracious. I don't have to be. Something we believe. That doesn't make forgiving, acknowledging the problems, seeing the, the ugliness of our unforgiving spirits doesn't make forgiving easy. Forgiveness is painful. Always painful. And it requires a persistent commitment. Sometimes it's easy to forgive or easier to forgive. Maybe it's a small sin. But maybe because we've had an experience of God's enormous grace, we realize what what God has done for us and we gladly say to that brother or sister, today, today I rejoice to say that I am free, that I can give to you the grace and acknowledge to you mercy. But here's the thing, tomorrow we're going to have to wake up and do it again. And a year from now, a month, or a month from now, a year from now, or even ten years from now, we may be still dealing with the consequences of their sin, and we may sometimes wake up and say, why must I be burdened? Why must I experience pain? It is hard to have to forgive all the time. But let our hearts and minds be turned to Christ in those moments, and remember, not only did He do that, That is, not only did He bear the weight of our sins, even for this sin, so that we have a hope and a future in Him. And not only does He promise us healing and restoration, a restoration and healing that no sinner, no other fellow man can provide, but He also calls us to be a light and a witness in this world. And so He says, forgive. Not because it makes sense. Not because it's easy but because you know me, because you've received it, and because you desire to walk in fellowship with me. Now that's a good reason for having to pray this prayer every day. That's the question we've asked at the outset of this second half of the Lord's Prayer. Do we really need to pray these prayers? Bread, do we really have to ask God to feed us? We talked about that last time. Today we ask Do we really have to pray for forgiveness? The answer is yes. Because we sin daily, we need to ask for forgiveness daily. We also need to pray the entire petition. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Because we know that's hard. Because we know that needs strength and blessing that only God can provide. And so when we read, when we rather re, we pray this petition, when we ask the Lord to forgive us our sins, then let us every time remember what He's done, be encouraged again and amazed at His mercy in Jesus Christ, realize that the worst sin that we've ever committed is included in His grace and washed clean by His Son. And standing in awe of that grace, let us then go to that brother or sister to whom we may owe mercy, to, we, or to, we may, to whom we may owe forgiveness. And let us say to them, I've been forgiven much, far more than you've ever done against me. And having been forgiven so much, 
I can forgive the little that you owe. That is to say, we just need to pray this prayer every day because we live in a bruising, difficult, challenging world. We make mistakes. Our neighbors make mistakes. And if we're to get down this pathway of life together, then we're going to need to have our debts forgiven and we're going to have to forgive each other. Let's ask the Lord for strength in that. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, it is hard for us to do this. Oh, the first half is easy, Lord, to quietly in our own uh, prayer closet to say, forgive me, Lord. It's more difficult, Lord, when our sins become public and then we have to admit, yes, you're right, I failed. But we pray that you would help us to truly appreciate just how great and gracious your love is, how amazing your grace is, and how wonderful your mercy towards us is. Help us to see how costly it was for you to wash us clean and help us to always appreciate that mercy. And then, Lord, when we bump up against others or when they bump up against us, maybe there's somebody in our past, maybe there's somebody in our present or future that's going to step on our toes, it's going to offend us. And help us, Lord, to check the rising anger, help us to check that rising pride, Help us to quietly remember why we've been forgiven. And then let's say to that brother or sister, hey, that was wrong. And I want to be reconciled to you. I'm ready to forgive you. Can we talk about about why? So that we may be reconciled and restored in our relationship with that brother or sister. So that in all that we do and say, Lord, our lives might be bathed in grace, might be filled with mercy, and might be expressions and testimony of what our world doesn't know, can't know, and doesn't experience. An enormous amount of grace. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.